Please remain standing for the reading of God's word. Exodus chapter 23, verses 20 through 33. Behold, I'm sending an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites, the Hevites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out, you shall not bow down to their gods nor serve them, nor do as they do. But you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. You shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness away from you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror before you and will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come. And I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. And I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites from before you. I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possessed the land. And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the Euphrates. For I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and you shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Well, again, good morning and welcome to all of you. Uh, If you're a guest here, my name is Nathan Smith, and I'm one of the pastors here. And I have the privilege of preaching from that passage that was just read for us from Exodus 23. Uh, We've been in Exodus for a while now. Uh, We're preaching through it. We took a little bit of a break for Good Friday and Easter, but now we are back into it. And um, I want to invite you to pray with me before... Uh, I begin to preach this word from God. God, we are so so thankful that you have already met us here this morning, that you've led our hearts to worship you. You've reminded us of the, the glory, the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. All our hope is in him. So I pray this morning that his spirit would Speak to us through this word. Lead us to cling more tightly to Jesus, to obey him more closely, to heed his warnings with more attention so that our hearts would be made steadfast in the faith. God, we praise you and we ask you to speak to us through this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I, I'm sure you're aware that there are a number of words in the English language that uh, are spelled 
uh, differently but sound the same. And one of those is the word faint. You have faint, F-A-I-N-T, which has actually a couple of different meanings. But then there's also the word faint, which is F-E-I-N-T, which means uh, kind of a, a misdirection or a, um, a sort of, uh, like in boxing, it would be kind of the jab that comes. That's, that's the faint. You're fainting with this, like it's a fake. But really what's coming is the straight right that's going to knock you out. Uh, and, and this kind of misdirection, this kind of fainting, is a, is a common tactic in sports. Um, you think about just the, the play-action fake where the quarterback is pretending to, to hand off to the tailback, but really he's still got it. And if, if, uh, if he sells it well, if the tailback sells it well by driving through the line, then, um, then the, the, the linebackers are coming in to guard the run, but actually quarterback still has it. He's going to launch it out and hit one of his receivers for a big gain. It's a, it's a feint. It's a distraction technique. Uh, in war, this is very common. There are a lot of famous instances of fainting in war, of distractions. One of the most famous is um, that fake that the, the Allied forces pulled off uh, right before D-Day when uh, they were going to begin that process of taking back Europe from the Nazis. They were going to invade on the beaches of Normandy, but the Allies did a great job of fainting, of faking, of sending radio messages that they knew the Nazis were going to intercept so that they thought that they were going to attack somewhere else. And in fact, the Allied forces went so far as to build inflatable tanks, put them on barges and boats, and send them across in different locations, not at the beaches of Normandy, and so, to, to the degree that the Nazis, when the attack happened in Normandy, they actually didn't think it was the real attack. They were expecting an assault, but they thought, this is just, uh, this is the feint. This is the fake. But it was actually the real one. So, it was a, a perfectly executed feint. And then there's a classic uh, feint in Jurassic Park, where the, uh, the Australian guy, he's like the, the hunter kind of guide. He, he respects the dinosaurs. He gets it. Uh, the dinosaurs escape, of course. The velociraptors are out, and he goes out to hunt them. And he sets up his own little feint, his own fake. He sets his hat out. So you think it's going to attract the dinosaur. He sees one over there. It's, it's rustling in the leaves, and he's, he thinks he's got it. And then all of a sudden, off to the side, he hears a rustling close. He turns and says, what does he say? Clever girl, right? And then she devours him. <clears throat> so the dinosaurs are actually setting up a feint. They were uh, distracting him while he thought he was distracting them. This is a common, common tactic. And this is a tactic that in the spiritual warfare in which we are engaged as a church, it's a tactic that our enemy, who is the great deceiver after all, that great dragon who's seeking to devour the church, he uses this tactic of fainting, of distraction, of presenting one thing as the great danger, but actually coming around and hitting us with the real danger from the side. And I fear that many Christians in America are falling for some of Satan's feints, his tricks. That we are focused on blocking that jab, but he's about to hit us with a straight right that's going to knock us cold. And I wonder if some here this morning are among those falling for his distractions. And we might get at that this way, by asking, what do you think the greatest threat to the church in America is? Do you think it's the influence of the leftward wing of the Democratic Party? Is it uh, the antagonistic media? Is it the transgender revolution? Is it the Equality Act? 
is the greatest danger to the church that Christian voices are being silenced by big tech? Or is it just, in your mind, is the greatest threat to the church the general threat to religious liberty that all of these things together comprises? And these things that I've just talked about, as American citizens, these are things that should deeply concern us, things that should affect the way that we vote, things that we should take appropriate action on. But these things are not the greatest threat to the church today. They are decoys. They are distractions from the chief danger. The chief danger to the church is now and always has been that Satan would lead us to be seduced by the idols of this world. That we would abandon our exclusive allegiance to God. And so our primary concern, while we should be concerned about those things, our primary concern should be that we are easily seduced into syncretism. Syncretism is that trying to add other gods into the worship of the one true God. And that syncretism will lead us to eventually abandon the one true God altogether. This is the great danger for the church throughout all ages. And so... Church, we need words like this one from Exodus 23. This word is going to remind us of where the real danger lies, that it's in falling away from God. But this passage also reminds us that through the gospel, God has given us gracious promises. God has given us commands. God's given us warnings to keep us on the path to the promised land. So that we don't fall away, God has given us this word today and many other words in Scripture. Uh, but this, this word is only effective if we actually hold fast to these promises, obey these commands, heed the warnings of God. And, and so that's the main message that I believe God has for us this morning from this text, is that if we are to enjoy the gracious blessings of God, we must obey His commands, heed His warnings, and treasure His promises. In order to enjoy the blessings of God, you must obey His commands, heed his warnings, and treasure his promises. And so, first, you must obey his commands. And before we talk about the commands, I want to remind you that God is giving these commands, the, you know, the Ten Commandments and all those precepts that followed that and, and all the commandments to come, that God is giving these commandments to his already redeemed people. He's already rescued them. This section of Exodus uh, that we're looking at today, it's the conclusion to this covenant that God is making with his people that he has already rescued out of Egypt. So these, the obedience to these commands, it's not a way for the Israelites to earn this relationship with God. It's not a way for them to earn this rescue. They've already been rescued. Rather, these commands are God's gracious gift to them to lead them in how they're to relate to him now as his redeemed people. And that needs to be clear because the same is true for us. God doesn't give us commands so that we can earn the right to be rescued by him. That salvation is a free gift. We can't earn it. In fact, we can't earn anything from God by our obedience. But these commands that God gives us are the way that we relate to him as those who have already been redeemed. And so notice in this passage that uh, there's more to God's commands than just the Ten Commandments. And even there was a, a section of a couple chapters after that that were kind of unpacking the Ten Commandments, giving uh, precepts for specific situations. But there are more to God's commands than even just 
that. God doesn't just give them those Ten Commandments and then leave them to make their own way into the promised land. He's going to guide them and give them more commands as they go. Uh, We see this in verse 20. God says that this angel that will go before them is going to continue to command them. He's going to be speaking to them on God's behalf. And the exact identity of this angel, it's not super clear. Uh, We see in verse 21 that it's not an ordinary angel because God says, my name is in him. And then in verse 22, God says, speaking of the angel, but if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, his voice, but do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies. Um, These passages here and a couple of other passages, this close association of the angel with God himself has led a lot of theologians over the ages to conclude that the angel that's being spoken of here is actually the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, uh, making an appearance in the Old Testament before his incarnation. Uh, And some would argue that in every instance in the Old Testament where the angel of the Lord is spoken about, that that's actually pre-incarnate, second person of the Trinity there. I don't think that it's clear enough that we can be dogmatic about it. I think it's, it's possible. But whatever the case may be, it is very clear that this angel is pointing towards Jesus, towards the second person of the Trinity who would take on full humanity. And so maybe this uh, angel is not God the Son himself, but he certainly is foreshadowing Jesus. And I think we can see this in a number of ways. Uh, One way that we see this is in the parallels between how the Israelites were supposed to relate to this angel and the way that we as the people of God today are to relate to Jesus. So let's look at a couple of those. In verse 20, God says of the angel that he will go before them on the way, bring them to the place that he has prepared. And doesn't that point us towards Jesus, who's gone before us behind the curtain, who's promised to be with us as we go, who said in John 14 that he has gone to prepare a place for us, and who's promised us that he will come again and he will take us to be with him in that place. Verse 21, uh, God tells Israel to pay careful attention to this angel and to obey his voice. Pay careful attention. In Mark 9, 7, at the transfiguration, God speaks from heaven and he says of Jesus, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Pay careful attention to him, obey him. And so as God would speak to Israel through this angel, God speaks to us, his people, through the son. He gives us these gracious commands that will keep us on the path to glory. And so we must obey those commands of God as they come to us through Jesus. There are more commands in this passage, uh, verses 23 through 25. God commands this, you shall not bow down to their gods nor serve them. He's talking about the people of, of, the, of Canaan, the, the land where they're headed. You shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. You shall serve the Lord your God. And then uh, dropping down to verses 32 and 33, you shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land. It's talking about the people's 
that are in the land now. God's saying, you need to cast them out completely. You need to remove all their idols. You need to remove every temptation to worship those idols. And so how does this apply to us today? I think an easy uh, application jump would be to say, oh, we're just supposed to separate ourselves from all non-believers. We should have no contact. They, they can't dwell in our land. That means they can't dwell in our neighborhood. Uh, they can't be around us at all. They can't be where we work. But that's not the case. Doesn't mean that we should avoid relationships with those who don't believe in Jesus. But it does mean that the church must actively fight to maintain her distinction from the world. And in the New Testament, we see that this is done on two, two different levels, that we maintain this distinction. It's, it's done on a personal level, but it's also done on a corporate level. And on the personal level, we have commands like this one from Romans 13, among many similar passages, Romans 13, 14, which says, But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So these... these um, it's as if within us there are these foreign peoples tempting us to sin, but it's actually our own flesh. And we are to make no provision for that flesh because that flesh wants to take God's good gifts and twist them into deities, all-powerful deities that would lead us to worship those things, to not give thanks to God, but to worship the things that he has made. And as Christians, you are to make no room in your life for the idolatrous tendencies of your flesh. You must constantly and vigilantly remove anything from your life that threatens to dethrone God from your heart. So that's the personal level. But then on the corporate level, we obey this command by vigorously maintaining the doctrinal and moral purity of the local church, the local church body. Listen to the Apostle Paul's words on this from 1 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 9. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. So purge the evil person from among you. Purge the evil person from among you. This is the same thing that God commanded the Israelites to do when they reached the promised land. And this local church, it's an outpost of the promised land, that promised land that will be, it's, it's an outpost of it that's been brought from the future into the present. And so it's not going to perfectly reflect what the church will be like in glory in that promised land one day, but we're supposed to strive to reflect that. Even though it won't be perfect, we're supposed to strive for that. And so because of that, Paul says that though we cannot and we should not even try to avoid contact with the world, we are called to keep the subversive influence of the world out of the church. And this doesn't mean that we don't welcome unbelievers to come and worship here. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you are welcome here. We're glad that you're here. We're, 
We believe that God has brought you here so that you could hear the good news of Jesus Christ. And our prayer is that you believe it. Because we believe it. That's why we're here this morning. And so we welcome you to hear. But for the church, God's command given to us through the Apostle Paul does mean that we cannot allow unbelieving, unrepentant sinners into membership or to remain in membership. Because their presence, their influence, says something untrue about our God, but it will also lead the rest of the church away from faithfulness to God. And we see this through the warnings given in Exodus 23, why it is so important that we obey this command to remove temptations to sin out of our lives personally and corporately. We must heed his warnings. So alongside these commands, God gives us warnings. So it's somewhat motivation, right? Here's a command. Why would I obey this? Well, because if you don't, here's the consequence. You're not going to like it. So let me warn you about the consequence. And the first warning here is found in verse 21 in reference to how the Israelites are to relate to the angel. Again, it says, pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him. So there's the command. Do not rebel against him. Listen to him. Here comes the warning. For he will not pardon your transgression. For my name is in him. He will not pardon your transgressions. And you might be thinking, well, you just said a few minutes ago that this angel foreshadows Jesus. This doesn't sound much like Jesus. He will not pardon your transgressions. This sounds like uh, one of the Dementors from the Harry Potter books. And if you're uninitiated into the wizarding world of Harry Potter, I'll just briefly say that Dementors are the scary guards for the wizard prison. They're beings who suck, leech all the joy out of your life and have the ability to suck your soul out of your body. Um, they're scary. And at one point, these Dementors, they're guarding Hogwarts school, and Professor Dumbledore, the headmaster of the school, is telling the students, hey, you don't want to run afoul of the Dementors because, he says, it is not in their nature to feel mercy. Surely, Jesus is not like a Dementor. I mean, from, from what we know in the New Testament, we know that he is full of mercy. He's full of compassion. That Jesus actually got in trouble for telling people, I forgive your sins. So is this a place where this foreshadowing, this, how this angel foreshadows Jesus, is this a place where that foreshadowing just kind of breaks down? Like, yeah, these other things kind of point to Jesus, but this doesn't. I actually don't think that's the case. In fact, we see echoes of this passage in the New Testament in reference to Jesus. Jesus himself says in John chapter 5, verse 22, for the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. All judgment has been given to Jesus. And so, yes, Jesus, Jesus did come to pardon sins, but he only pardons those who honor him, those who don't continue in rebellion against him. He only pardons those who believe in him and in believing in him, surrender their lives completely to him. 
Jesus doesn't pardon those who continue rebelling against him, rejecting him all the way to the end. So if you're feeling the burden of your sin, feeling the burden of your guilt, your shame, your sense that I know there's a God, he is a holy God, I've sinned against him and I feel condemned before him. If that's true for them, you, you need to know that surrendering to Jesus is the only way for your sin to be pardoned. That is the way that God has made for forgiveness. There is no other way. And this is so important, I want to show you in one other place in Scripture where it, it more clearly says this even. John 3.36 says that whoever believes in the Son, Son is speaking of Jesus, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. God is graciously warning you today, don't rebel against Jesus. Don't continue in your rebellion against Jesus. If you do, your transgression will not be pardoned. But the flip side of that is the good news that God is also graciously urging you today to hear this. Submit to Jesus. Listen to Jesus. Trust in Jesus. Obey him. And your sins will be pardoned. Your sins will be forgiven. No matter what it is, your worst, deepest, darkest, most secret sin, it will be pardoned by trusting in Jesus. And God is saying, when you trust in him, your sins are pardoned. I will accept you as my child. You'll be mine. So the first warning is, don't rebel against Jesus. The second warning in this passage is found in verse 33. So they shall not dwell in your land. Speaking again about the peoples, the, the Canaanite peoples. They shall not dwell in your land lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. This is the warning. It will be a snare to you. And again, this is, as I said at the beginning of the message, the primary danger for God's people in all times and all places that we would be seduced into serving the gods of this world, that those idols would ensnare our hearts, lead us into sinning against, and then ultimately into rejecting the one true God. And the story of Israel, if you know anything of the Old Testament, you know that the story of Israel is a sad testimony to the reality of this danger. They fell into it quickly, even before they got to the promised land. They were seduced into worshiping Baal. And just like many today in that temptation and several temptations after, uh, Israel's temptation was initiated by um, a sexual temptation. And sex is always one of Satan's go-to weapons in drawing the church, drawing the people of God into temptation, but there's also the perennial temptations uh, towards the gods of materialism and comfort, the gods of power, recognition, influence. And knowing that these idols are real and that they are, they're, they're not just limited to the Old Testament. They are current. They are present realities. I wonder where your heart is being drawn. What, what idol is seducing your heart? It seems apparent to me that both of these false gods, that both materialism and power are being worshipped in the church in America today. But I want to spend some time on that second one, that God of power, because 
we talk about materialism fairly often, or it's talked about in the church, and it's somewhat easier to spot, I think, than, than when materialism is worshipped than it is to spot when power is being worshipped. And I see two primary ways that the church in America is being seduced into worshipping the God of power, that God of influence, that God of, uh, of reputation. And the first way that I see that the church in America is being tempted, drawn into worship this idol of power, is that some churches begin to so seek the approval of the world that they're abandoning the clear historic teachings of Scripture in order to come in line with the current whims of the culture's morality. Now, recently, two Southern Baptist churches, one in Kentucky and one in Georgia, were removed from the Southern Baptist Convention because those churches had either welcomed or were planning to welcome practicing unrepentant LGBTQ people into their church, not just to join them for worship, which we would do as well, but to come and join them in membership, to be united to them in membership. And so the Southern Baptist Convention said, after a period of, of time and questioning, said this, this does not line up with what God has told us about purging the evil person from among you. But these churches are glad to be removed from the SBC in some ways. Feel, they feel they have a moral superiority now because they want to be seen as inclusive, welcoming, loving they fear losing their influence and power in society, and so they are caving in to the society's current whims so they can maintain that position. They've been deceived. They're seduced by the gods of this world. And before we too quickly um, think that we are above such things, the Apostle Paul warns us in 1 Corinthians 10, if anyone thinks he stand, let him take heed lest he fall. You're not above such temptations. But that's not the only way that the church is tempted to worship power and influence. There's also a very real temptation for those who think that they stand firm against that kind of temptation, against caving in, against uh, theological uh, compromise, those who stand strong against that. There's there's a temptation to worship the same idol, but coming from the other side. And that happens when the church begins fighting its battles using the weapons of the world. And what I mean is that we can feel that just desperate because we feel like we're just losing ground and losing ground and losing ground. That culture is moving more and more in a godless direction. That we begin to feel desperate and we begin to use the weapons of the world. Weapons like unrighteous anger, like deception, like slanderous speech. We're tempted to use the weapons of political organization. Some even have begun to use the weapon of violence as if it were a weapon of God. And I want to be very clear on this with a very timely example, that those who violently stormed the Capitol under the banner of Jesus' name, believing that they were fighting a holy war, had actually already lost the important battle. 
They had swallowed Satan's deceptive distraction, hook, line, and sinker. They were not fighting for King Jesus, no matter what any flags over their heads might have said. We know this because in John 18, 36, Jesus, in talking to Pilate, said, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Listen, there are important battles to fight. Some of them as citizens of the United States, we need to understand how we can lawfully and rightly engage in those, but we need to keep our identities separate. We have a dual citizenship. We have a citizenship in the United States of America, but we have, and that's our secondary citizenship. Our primary citizenship is as of citizens of the kingdom of God and of his Christ. And that citizenship takes priority over that secondary citizenship. And we shouldn't mingle the two. We cannot fight for the kingdom of God using the weapons of this world. And to do so is to abandon trust in God alone and to begin worshiping at the feet of the false god of power. Our battle is a spiritual one. Our weapons are spiritual. Ephesians 6 unpacks this, the armor of God. Our weapons are the proclamation of the gospel. Our weapons are prayer. Our, our weapons are standing firm in the truth revealed in Scripture. The weapons that God has given to us are weapons like refusing to revile when we are reviled against Weapons like refusing to turn, return evil for evil. We fight as Jesus did, by loving the unlovely, by protecting and caring for the unwanted. We fight by faith, with our sure hope of victory, anchored firmly in the promises of God. And lastly... In order to experience the blessings of God, you must treasure his promises. God gives his people three glorious promises in this passage. First, God promises his guarding and guiding presence. This is in verse 20, which we've read a couple of times already. He said, Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. God promises that he will be with them. He's going to guard them. He's going to bring them safely all the way to the promised land. His guarding and guiding presence. Second, God promises that he will fight for them. This is throughout the whole section, really, but it's summed up in verse 22, where God tells the Israelites that he will be an enemy to their enemies, that he'll be an adversary to, to their adversaries. He's on their side. He's fighting for them. And then lastly, God promises prepared blessings. And we see this actually in the, in the first verse in this passage, right there at the end of verse 20. He says that his angel will bring them to the place that he has prepared for them. And then as we go on in verse 25, God promises that once they get to the promised land, if they faithfully serve them, he's going to bless their bread, their water. He's going to take away sickness from them. None of them would miscarry or be barren in their land. That he's going to fulfill the number of their days. That, that means they're going to live to a ripe old age. Nobody's going to die uh, as an infant, no one's going to die young. He promises that he would drive out the nations, not all at once, but little by little, so that the land that those nations had been cultivating for years, for generations, that that land wouldn't be taken over by thorns and wild beasts. I don't know if, um, if any of you have any land that you care for, but 
we have some acreage, and if we, I don't get around to cutting the field, the uh, cedars begin taking over, the honeysuckle begins taking over. You you have to keep on it, and that happens incredibly fast. Like in one season, one summer, what was a, a field can become a thicket. God's saying, I'm not going to allow that to happen. I'm going to drive these people out slowly so that you can just step in and begin cultivating and begin farming those fields that they had cultivated. These are incredible promises that God makes. And yet, as wonderful as these promises were in the Old Covenant, the writer of Hebrews in chapter 8 tells us that through this new covenant that is ours made in Christ, we actually have better promises than this. And so I want to give you these promises before we close today. They are the same promises, but they are amplified. Those were shadows. We are given the reality. And so, Christian, God has promised you his guarding and guiding presence. And one of those better promises that the writer of Hebrews is talking about is the fact that the very Spirit of God for the Christian comes and dwells within us. If you're a Christian, the Spirit of God dwells within you. His presence is with you. God hasn't just sent his angel to go before you. He's actually sent his spirit to live within you. That he has sealed you by that spirit, guarding your heart for the day of redemption. He's that Holy Spirit who guides you into all truth. He's that Holy Spirit who will guard you against every scheme of the evil one. This isn't just a force. It's a personal spirit, the third person of the Trinity, the Almighty God dwelling within you in such a way that you are united to Jesus, so that Jesus, before he ascended, would say, Behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. That he will never leave you or forsake you. God has promised his guarding and guiding presence with you in Christ. Secondly, God promises that he will fight for you. This is what Jesus was doing on the cross. He was fighting for you. For you. He was conquering sin and the devil for you. In Colossians chapter 2, Paul says that on the cross, Jesus Christ was putting Satan and all his minions to open shame, triumphing over them through that cross. And then through his resurrection, Jesus ripped a stinger out of death's tail, did that for you to bless you because he's fighting for you by his life now, his his unending life, his glorious life, his reigning right now at the right hand of God. Through that, Jesus can say to you in this world, yes, you're going to have trouble. There will be battles, but take heart, he says, for I have overcome the world. And because Jesus has overcome the world, through our faith in him, we have overcome the world. First John uh, chapter 5, verse 4 says, Everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? He has overcome. He is victorious. He battled. He conquered. And simply through faith in who he is and what he has accomplished, you get the victory. You have no enemy to fear. In fact, the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8, we're, we're more than conquerors through Jesus Christ. We are more than conquerors. Because if God is for us, he says, and God is for us, 
then who can be against us? And lastly, God promises that he has blessings prepared for you. In Hebrews chapter 11, it says that they are better blessings than what he has promised to Israel. And all that great stuff about the land and health and and wealth and all that, God has promised better blessings. I knew this message was going to go long, and so I took a section out. God has blessings for us in this life. They're awesome. I don't have time to talk about them. What I'm going to talk about are the blessings that are awaiting for us. God isn't just preparing a small piece of land in the Middle East for his people. He is preparing a whole new creation, a renewed creation for us to enjoy. The entire world, renewed and perfect, without any of the effects of the fall, is being prepared for you to enjoy. Not just no miscarriage or barrenness or sickness, although that will be true, but every cause for sorrow will be wiped away. No more tears of sorrow, no more fear for what might happen in the future, no more striving with the destruction that's caused by our own sin or the sin of other people in our lives. No more wars, no more mass shootings, no more racism or suspicion of racism, no more natural disasters, and not just a long good life, dying in old age, but unending life, enjoying this renewed, sinless creation, enjoying the worship of God forever and ever without fear of death, without growing weak and old and our body is running down and getting frail. On and on we will enjoy in ever-increasing joy God himself who will dwell with us. And here's the most incredible thing about these precious promises, that God prepared these blessings, prepared all these promises for people like you and me. People who were born condemned under sin. People who rejected him as our God and fell at the feet of idols over and over and over again, giving them our allegiance. It's in this that the overwhelming love of God is made so brilliantly crystal clear. That Christ died to secure all of these precious promises for you, even while you were rebelling against him. Scripture says, love of God is seen in this, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were yet rebelling, Christ died to purchase these promises for us. And we're about to take a communion. And this is a, it's a covenant meal. If you're one of God's redeemed, as you take it, you are rejoicing in this magnificent grace of God that he would send his son to bear the wrath that was stored up for your sin. And on top of that, Jesus was conquering sin and Satan on your behalf. This is what he was doing on the cross. And on top of that, he was securing all of these precious promises of God and more for you. And so this is a time of rejoicing, but before we take communion today, I want to speak to those here who who have not submitted to Jesus. As I read earlier, God's word says that if you don't believe in Jesus, the wrath of God is still on you. You don't have these promises of God. You don't have the guiding and guarding presence of God. 
God is not fighting for you. You can't rest in his promises. You have nothing actually to look forward to at the end of your life but the consequences of your sin, which is an eternity of suffering under the just wrath of God. And so what I ask you is, won't you stop rebelling against God today? Won't you submit your life to Jesus? Because you can know pardon. You can have complete and full pardon for your sins, not by what you do, but by what Jesus has done for you. So trust in him today. And if you do that today, or if you want to know more about it, uh, we would love to talk to you. Well, you can email the pastors at prcpastors at pineyridgechurch.org. You can fill out one of the connection cards, um, drop it in one of the boxes before you head out today. You can just grab one of us and talk to us here today. You can talk to any friend or family member who's here with you, who um, you know is following Jesus. We would love to talk with you. But because this communion time that we're about to celebrate is a time of celebration for those who have received God's grace through Jesus, if you have not, we ask that you not take communion this morning. But for all those who have believed that Jesus is the Son of God, I invite you now to take this communion cup, open it, and take out the wafer. This bread represents the body of Jesus that was nailed to the cross, bearing every one of your sins. Take it with faith in his saving sacrifice for you. Now open the juice. This juice represents the blood of Jesus that poured from his shredded back, from his thorn-pierced brow, from his nail-pierced hands and feet, from his spear-pierced side. That blood flowed, that cleansed you from your sin. That blood flowed, bringing you into this sweet covenant of fellowship with our Father, purchased for you every promise of God. Drink it with joyful faith. Now please join me in prayer. God, we, we are astounded by your grace this morning. And we praise you that though by rights, none of us would have our transgressions pardoned. That by your mercy, because of your great love, Jesus has purchased what we could never earn. And God, I pray that, that our love for Jesus will just overflow now in, in glorious praise to his name as we put evermore all of our trust in him and him alone. God, we love you. And we pray in the name of our Savior. Amen.